Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Glenn Elmers. He is a visiting research fellow with Hillsdale College and a senior fellow with the Claremont Institute. He has served as a speechwriter for two cabinet secretaries and has published articles and essays in the Claremont Review of Books, the Review of Metaphysics, Modern Age, Law and Liberty, National Review, and American Greatness. He holds a PhD in politics from Claremont Graduate University, where he studied with the great Harry Jaffa. And this is an especially relevant detail as Glenn joins us today to discuss his new book about Harry Jaffa, The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa, and the Fight for America. Glenn Elmers, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you so much, Nino. It's really delightful to be here. Now, we'll have some listeners who are intimately familiar with Jaffa's work. We'll have at least one who knew him personally and were either victims or benefactors of his midnight calls. Uh, but we'll have others who have never heard of the man. So let's, let's start here. Who was Harry Jaffa? And perhaps as a teaser for the rest of the conversation, why should we care about what he had to say? Sure. Two good questions. So you can't really understand Jaffa, especially as a scholar, without understanding his teacher, Leo Strauss was probably sufficiently famous at this point among conservatives that I don't need to give a big bio on him. Strauss was the very, very influential German emigre scholar who fled Nazi Germany, taught for many years at the University of Chicago, and almost single-handedly revived the serious study of political philosophy, not as antiquarian curiosities, but as sources of, of living wisdom and enduring truth. Jaffa was one of his, Harry Jaffa was one of his very first graduate students. He knew him in New York at the New School before Strauss went to Chicago. Uh, Jaffa was among the first people to get a PhD with Strauss and is probably among the most political of Strauss's students. Uh, wrote an immensely influential book on Lincoln in 1959. Uh, was certainly among the most polemical and spirited of Strauss's students. Probably the only Strauss student to form his own school self-consciously. Uh, Jaffa moved out to California, to Southern California, to Claremont, where he taught for many years at Claremont McKenna College and Claremont Graduate School. Uh, and some of his students in 1979 formed uh, in, uh, a think tank, a nonprofit organization, not affiliated with the colleges, but in the same town called the Claremont Institute, which continues to this day, is now going on its 41st year, I think. Um, in order to, to promote and develop and explain Jaffa's insights about America having brought to bear Strauss's uh, recovery of classical political philosophy, uh, and again, applying that to the understanding of America. Now, those who have at least a surface level familiarity with Jaffa likely go immediately to his work on Abraham Lincoln in those two magisterial books, Crisis of the House Divided and A New Birth of Freedom. But that's not where Jaffa began. He began with Aristotle. So let's have that as our entry point. In sure. what ways was Jaffa influenced by Aristotle? Aristotle and Aquinas both. His, right. his, his doctoral dissertation uh, under Strauss, which he started in the late... So he met Strauss uh, uh, during the war, 
uh, got his uh, PhD in, in uh, 49, I believe, from Strauss, for a dissertation on Aquinas's interpretation of Aristotle's politics. That was published as a book, really without any modifications in 53, I think. Um, and he, uh, that was the beginning of his lifelong fascination. I'm sorry, did I say the politics? I meant the Nicomachean ethics, I misspoke. Uh, Aquinas's interpretation of the Nicomachean ethics. And uh, I, I say in my book that Jaffa absorbed the ethics into his bones. Hmm. Uh, he taught Aristotle throughout his whole career. His course on the ethics was famous. Many, many people who studied with him said that the course on, on Aristotle's ethics was the highlight of their whole college career. Hmm. Jaffa used to call it, he used to say there's, uh, quoting Strauss, he used to say, life is too short to read any but the great books. And on any list, the ethics would be a great book because Unlike the politics, which has to, which has principles that need to be adapted to different historical circumstances, the ethics, in a way, stands on its own. It's teaching about the good life, about happiness, about habits, uh, uh, apply in all times and in all places, and it's really an immense uh, uh, source of wisdom even today. Uh, Jaffa, by the way, changed his mind a little bit. So when he wrote his dissertation. He thought that Aquinas had somewhat perhaps misrepresented or misunderstood Aristotle. And he came to see later that Aquinas was, in his estimation, a philosopher in his own right, who, who was very carefully trying to bring the wisdom of Aristotle to bear in the Christian, Catholic, uh, I, I would say theocratic, some Catholics don't like that term, uh, society in which he was living, but certainly a society in which the doctrines of the church were very strongly imposed. And so he uh, quite artfully, Jaffa thought, uh, was trying to bring the wisdom of Aristotle uh, uh, to bear to modify and, and um, attenuate some of the uh, extreme uh, elements uh, of, of, the Catholics, of the Christian society in which he was living. So he, came, so he came to have a higher estimation of Aquinas later on as a real philosopher. Yeah. Are there particular ideas in Aristotle that were uh, particularly appealing or influential with Jaffa? Yeah, so he always called, following Strauss, he always called uh, Aristotle the first political scientist. Um, he wrote a, a very long, very substantial essay on Aristotle, which was uh, um, the essay immediately following Strauss's essay on Plato, in a very influential book called The History of Political Philosophy. This is something that Strauss put together, uh, a, um, a kind of a synoptic view of all the major thinkers in the Western tradition, a chapter uh, uh, from Plato all the way up to Nietzsche and Heidegger. And uh, in the first edition, Strauss wrote the chapter on Plato and he asked Jaffa to write the, the second chapter on Aristotle. And it's 60 pages, it's very dense, very interesting. And Jaffe used to say that all political science is in some way derivative of or a modification of Aristotle. So what were the particular themes he was interested in? Um, one is that every regime, every political community can be looked at uh, what he called genetically or teleologically. So those are sort of fancy philosophical terms. Uh, it means where does the political community come from? That's the genetic account. And what does it exist for? What is its purpose? What is its end? That's the part that we forget. We moderns tend to forget that politics is supposed to have a higher purpose. And for Aristotle, that purpose is human happiness. And again, for Aristotle, happiness requires virtue. And Jaffa loved to explain this part of Aristotle, which is so often forgotten today, that the political community properly understood is a community of friends 
who come together to be happy. As I mentioned a moment ago, most are familiar with Jaffa as a brilliant defender and student of America. So, so taking these two interests of his, America and Aristotle, what's the relationship? What relationship did Jaffa see between the two? That is, what did Jaffa think Aristotle meant or means to America? So um, Aristotle uh, was always more accessible than Plato. Plato, of course, wrote these dialogues, which are immensely interesting, but also difficult. Uh, Aristotle wrote treatises, uh, much more accessible, much more uh, usable for practical-minded people, and the American founders were practical-minded people. Jaffa used to like to use the word, the Greek word, phronomoi, uh, prudent men. It's a Greek word that just means men of prudence. Phronesis is the Greek word for prudence. They were prudent statesmen, and they found Aristotle immensely useful as a practical guide to decent politics. Now, Aristotle's teaching couldn't just be imported entirely into the modern world, certainly not the Christian world, and that's an important thing we might talk about, how Christianity changed modern politics. But they found the principles of Aristotle immensely useful. Again, uh, this idea of what does the political community exist for, uh, the different parts of any political regime, uh, the idea of, of a mixed or balanced constitution. Um, Jefferson himself, by the way, cites Aristotle in a, in a letter very late in life. He's talking about the philosophical origins of the Declaration and mentions two modern authors and two ancient authors, hmm. uh, Aristotle and Cicero, Locke and Sidney. So Aristotle's first, the Roman philosopher Cicero, and then Algernon Sidney and, and of course, John Locke as the, as the philosophical background of the Declaration of Independence. So Aristotle uh, was, a, was a great influence on the founders for many reasons. Borrowing a chapter title from your book, The Philosopher and the Poet, Aristotle and Shakespeare. So we've talked a little bit about Aristotle. Let's introduce Shakespeare here. Why did Jaffa have such an affinity for Shakespeare? What did he learn from him? So uh, on, on simply the poetic level, Shakespeare is uh, breathtaking in his understanding of the human soul, in his understanding of love and friendship, ambition, depravity, uh, uh, but was also in many other uh, uh, virtues of the variety of life, uh, the depths and heights of the human soul. But he was also, and Jaffa was among the first people to really point this out in quite the way that he did, a political and philosophical thinker of the first rank. Uh, let me just say a word about that. On the political level, Jaffa was very interested in Shakespeare's history plays, all those Richards and Henrys that we may have seen, you know, Kenneth Branagh doing that great Henry V <laughs> uh, TV adaption. Um, and what they showed, which Jaffa found very interesting, is the problem or the limitations of the political philosophy of the Middle Ages, the, 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 the European political scene that Shakespeare was confronting. Uh, the, real, the only basis of political authority at that time was the divine right of kings. Then, as had it always been the case in the world, all political authority came from God. But the problem with divine right of kings is, as Jaffa explained, it could never combine competence with legitimacy. The heir to the throne might be a bully or a drunkard or a weakling, and Shakespeare shows some of those, whereas the, the best person suited to rule might not have a legitimate claim. And so it's a source of endless conflict. And as the Shakespeare history plays show, civil war is always looming or, or occurring. And what Jaffa saw is Shakespeare's kind of pointing or hinting or looking for the solution that, that ultimately is found in the American founding with limited constitutionalism, equal rights, representation, uh, but still that appeal to God, 
the, the great uh, insight that Jaffa had, not perhaps insight, but the thing that he emphasized all the time is that the American founding uh, created what you might call a natural theological basis. Mm. That is authority still came from something above our passion, above our will, it still had a divine source. The, the declarations phrase, the laws of nature, nature's God. I mean, political authority still comes from something above us, but it's a natural non-sectarian account, which allows for religious liberty and provides a much secure basis for just government than anything that had, could have been discovered in the Middle Ages. So that's the history plays. A quick word about uh, the, the comedies and the tragedies, yeah. which Jeff saw also as deeply philosophical. And there, Shakespeare is playing around in a way with themes out of Machiavelli. Hmm. Um, Confronted with the, the problems of theocracy or, or uh, clericalism in the Middle Ages, and there's a long complicated story here that we don't want to get into, the early moderns tried to find a new basis for politics to, to uh, uh, address the problem of, of clericalism, you might say, or theocracy. Um, and part of this involves using science, part of it involves changing the horizon of what politics should accomplish, being, being less focused on on virtue and the moral life or the life hereafter. Um, and, and Machiavelli was of the opinion that we could use science and to quote a famous phrase from another early modern Francis Bacon for the relief of man's estate. That is if we could just focus on the needs of the body satisfying our passions and get rid of all of this virtue stuff we'd all be much happier. And Shakespeare is playing around with this idea also of what could it mean to control events uh, and, and also a very classical idea out of Plato of the philosopher king. And so the comedies and the tragedies, some of them anyway, some more than others, measure for measure or their tempest, play around with this idea of the wise man or the, the wise philosopher king. And the reason they're comedies and tragedies is it never works. Hmm. Shakespeare is showing us in a way the limits of politics. The, the, the idea of the philosopher king, the relationship between wisdom and consent, all of these great philosophical themes which always end either tragically or comedy, because in a way, politics is always going to be limited. Jaffa, in fact, wrote a wonderful essay called The Limits of Politics, which is about King Lear, uh, which shows uh, uh, Shakespeare's very deep and philosophical interest in these classical themes. Um, Jaffa liked to say that Shakespeare was himself a Platonist. <laughs> uh, and Shakespeare's world is, is very much like Plato's world. Uh, except that the plays, the dialogues become plays. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, one thing that takes place in, in Plato's world, in the Republic, is we hear of an ancient quarrel between poetry and philosophy. And yet Jaffa seems to reconcile the two. And as you mentioned, he even refers to Shakespeare at one point as the philosopher poet. So is this quarrel between poetry and philosophy exaggerated in some way? Or is Shakespeare a unique kind of poet, capable of using poetry to advance philosophy? How, how does Jaffa see this? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, he does see Shakespeare as a kind of philosopher poet. There's a line in, in Plato's dialogue called the Symposium saying that no poet could ever master both comedy and tragedy. Yeah. In, in ancient Athens, the comic poets stayed on their side and the tragic poets stayed on their side. Um, and Plato speculates about a poet that could do both. And Jaffa says, Shakespeare was that poet. <laughs> mm. um, I don't think he, he overcomes uh, that distinction in a way, because what Plato means by that or, or what the classical philosophical tradition means by that is that 
philosophy is the unrelenting, relentless pursuit of wisdom, which uh, in a way has to set aside all pieties, right? It has to be absolutely uncompromising in questioning uh, faith, morality, everything at all. Whereas the poets are in a way the defenders of the morality of the regime. Um, and Shakespeare in a way is a poet. He, he in a way expresses the moral horizon of European Christendom. Again, in an absolutely superlative and, and illuminating way. Again, the title of that chapter, uh, you, you talk about Aristotle and Shakespeare. Did Jaffa see a necessary hierarchy between the philosopher and the poet. I think, for example, you, you, you mentioned the symposium and the suggestion yeah. that we can have a poet who does both tragedy and comedy. And uh, a few weeks ago, we released an episode on the symposium, and we talked a little bit about the end of that play, when the philosopher Socrates is left talking to the two poets, one comic, one tragic. And the comic poet falls asleep, and then the tragic poet falls asleep. <laughs> and the philosopher goes about his work. Right. Uh, so, so I'm curious, did, did Jaffa see a hierarchy there or could the two be uh, kind of equal in some sense? Um, they each, I, I would say they each have their place. Um, in a way, they can be combined in the, in, in the highest human type, uh, mm -hmm. what the medievals called the prophet. He saw uh, probably the highest type that, that uh, uh, Jaffa ever talked about was Lincoln. And Lincoln, in a way, uh, uh, manifested himself as a kind of <laughs> philosopher, poet, statesman. Um, again, what the medievals sometimes called the, the, the philosophic prophet. Um, so uh, as a way of life, they're radically different. Uh, the way they can present themselves uh, in the world, uh, their political faces, uh, can be, there can be philosophic poets, uh, <laughs> there can be philosophers who present themselves as statesmen. Um, but the reason I, I brought those two in is that Shakespeare and Aristotle represent from Jaffa's point of view, the kind of distillation uh, of the highest uh, example of, of poetry in Shakespeare's case and the political philosopher in Aristotle's case. Sure. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Leo Strauss. I, I want to touch, uh, spend a little more time on him. Could you say a word about their relationship, about the relationship between Jaffa and Strauss, and specifically what Jaffa seems to have taken from Strauss, and, and perhaps more interestingly, anywhere the two might have disagreed? Sure. So again, Jaffa was one of his first students. Uh, I don't want to get too much into this whole question of who was the most important primus sure. inter pares and all of that. Uh, you know, people get into sort of nasty disputes in the Straussian community about this, but but it's indisputable that Jaffa was among his first. He was uh, Jaffa's research assistant. He uh, he once said that he attended every one of his classes for seven years, wow. even after Strauss went to Chicago. Uh, he he brought Jaffa with him uh, for a little while and, and uh, Jaffa stayed in on many of his classes. Uh, they kept in touch throughout their whole lives. There, there's letters that I've seen. Uh, some of them are at the Jaffa Papers archives at Hillsdale College. Some of them are in the Strauss paper archives at Regenstein Library in the University of Chicago. And um, there's even a letter from Strauss to Jaffa just months before he died in, mm -hmm. in uh, 72 or 73. So they may they remain friends their whole lives. Um, I don't want to make any claims of you know 
who Strauss regarded as his best, best students, whether it was Joffre or someone else, it's not for me to say. Um, but again, what, what Jaffa learned from him is the recovery of political philosophy as a source of transhistorical or enduring wisdom, not merely as historical curiosities. And, the, and again, he was the most political. He really thought the political philosophy is not just the dissecting of texts, but the application of wisdom for the pursuit of happiness, for human life, for justice. And so he really tried to bring uh, Strauss's project, you might say, to recover uh, the West, to save the West from its uh, self-immolation <laughs> on the altar of nihilism. Uh, and, and he particularly thought that America, uh, because of its, its basis in, in natural law and natural right in the founding, provided the best hope uh, as, as, as a way the political philosophy could manifest itself in the modern world. Where they disagreed, Jaffa would uh, say they didn't disagree, and I don't want to contradict that now that Jaffa's gone. Um, uh, Jaffa always, uh, till the very end, maintained that he was a loyal student of Leo Strauss. Other people think that they disagreed on some things because Jaffa was clearly more polemical, more political, more patriotic. Uh, and there's reasons for that. I mean, Strauss had his own project, and Jaffa saw his project as building and extending that. And so to that degree, there is some difference there in the sense that, uh, you know, you might, the phrase I'm using in an essay I'm writing now uh, about the differences between the East and West Coast Straussians, I use the phrase, Strauss opened a door and Jaffa walked through it. And that means that Jaffa was going, was going to have something else to do that yeah. built on, on Strauss's work. Uh, you mentioned Jaffa there as sort of the most political of Strauss's oh, yeah. students and certainly more political than Strauss himself. Let's talk about politics. Yeah. In 1964, Barry Goldwater thundered, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. The author of those famous lines, of course, Harry Jaffa. Right. Okay. Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. This seems surprising coming from the student of the most prudent man in American history, perhaps Abraham Lincoln. This seems more like something we'd expect to hear from Thomas Paine or John Brown than from Abraham Lincoln. What do we make of that? Lincoln was an extremist. You know who said that? Martin Luther King. Yeah. So part of uh, what was going on with that speech in 1964 is just a little bit of historical background. Barry Goldwater had been accused by the moderate uh, Republican establishment along the East Coast of being this extremist. And uh, it was a barb that they were throwing at him constantly, and he got sort of exasperated with it. And Jaffa wrote a little memo, mostly just for internal consumption of the campaign, saying, by the way, you know, a lot of people have been called extremists, and, and uh, here's a little background on that. And it just by coincidence, uh, Martin Luther King, just the year before in 1963, in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, had touched on this very theme yeah, and yeah. said, Jesus, you know, because King himself had been accused of being an extremist and said, well, you know what? It turns out Jesus was accused of being an extremist, St. Paul, Jefferson, Lincoln, and King's response is, uh, the question is whether we will be an extremist for justice. Hmm. And Jaffa sort of liked that and he picked up on it. And Jaffa, of course, had his own uh, independent knowledge of all of these figures uh, in his own studies and developed this theme a little bit in a memo. And uh, Goldwater liked it so much, he said, okay, write a, write a speech about that. And he made Jaffa the speechwriter and, mm -hmm. and ordered him to put those lines. Those, those famous lines, by the way, 
were in there at Barry Goldwater's personal insistence, <laughs> even though his staff thought that they were a little incendiary. It wasn't even really Jaffa's idea. Jaffa just did that in a memo. Okay, so this idea of extremism. Um, Jaffa agreed with Martin Luther King and even more deeply with Aristotle um, that extremism has to be part of political life because political life itself can be extreme. I mean, was the Civil War not an extreme event? Uh, this goes back to uh, an understanding of what does prudence mean? Because um, sometimes extremism is the right thing to do. Um, so if you don't mind, let me just say a word about sure. this because it's, 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 a, it's a virtue and in, in a way it's the political virtue in Aristotle and it's completely misunderstood or forgotten today. And what I'm gonna say sounds like moral relativism, but it isn't. In fact, it's the opposite of it. But prudence means uh, there are no fixed moral rules. Okay, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the Ten Commandments. It means that there always is an objective moral order. There's an objectively right answer, but we can never know beforehand what that is. It depends on the circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. Again, that's not relativism. It just means, for instance, if you're confronted with a burning building and there's a, a cry for help inside the building, it matters very much what the circumstances are and whether you're courageous or suicidal right, depends very much on all sorts of factors that can't be determined ahead of time. And so the definition of courage, of justice, of prudence, of all these things depends on what you can do, what the circumstances require. And there is an objective moral answer, but it, it, it can only be determined in the moment. And that's why uh, Aristotle liked to say, uh, prudence is decided by what, a, the definition of prudence is what a prudent man does. <laughs> And all that background is necessary to say that sometimes extremism is moderation, right? Because mm -hmm. what's required, it, well, whatever is required uh, uh, depends on, on what has to be done. And so extremism is sometimes the right answer. So I'm, I'm making a very long-winded answer to your question is that extremism has to be part of political life because politics itself can be extreme. And that's the proper understanding of moderation in a way also. We can't talk about Harry Jaffa and, and not talk about the crisis of the Strauss divided, this yeah. infamous schism between the East Coast and West Coast Straussians. And don't worry, listeners, we're going to, to have Glenn define these in a second. And so we'll take this in two parts and start here. Uh, first, what do we mean by Straussian in this context? Or are there doctrines or ways of thinking that are similar between these two camps or do we just mean Straussian in that members of these schools were influenced by Strauss in some way? So, um, as I've said a couple of times now, Strauss, uh, in a way, a little bit of background. So in the middle of the 20th century, this is still true today among most intellectuals, but it was really absolutely unquestioned in the middle of the 20th century when Strauss came along. Uh, the idea is we're, we're all historical relativists, right? Plato and Aristotle, sure, they're interesting, uh, from a historical point of view, they're good representatives of aristocratic Greek thought in the fifth century BC, and that's it. But the idea that they might have something to say that could still be true for us today was absolutely rejected. Hmm. Now, it's still widely rejected among the intellectual class today, but it was rejected by everyone. I mean, it wasn't even challenged by anyone until Strauss came along and through a really tremendous effort showed why uh, historicism, which is this doctrine of, of historical relativism that we're all trapped in our culture, is, is uh, logically fallacious and, mm -hmm. and rebutted that and really brought back the, the serious study of ancient thought, medieval thought, 
And all Straussians basically agree on that, of whatever flavor or geographical camp they may be, right? That the classical tradition has something to teach us, that there are enduring questions. We don't always know the answers, but the, the questions remain, right? That we're not trapped in our particular moment. Uh, part of this, another great insight that, that Strauss had is we have to read the texts of the greatest minds very carefully, right? If you're a great author, you think carefully, you read carefully, and you write carefully. And part of this has to do with the political situation might be very dicey, and it might be a little bit dangerous to say too openly what you think, right? And so uh, sometimes philosophers guard their speech. This is a, a doctrine called esotericism, which is very controversial, which Strauss uh, discusses. So all Straussians agree on sort of the permanent questions, on the close reading of texts, uh, on the value of ancient Greek thought. On more political, practical questions, that's where the differences come. Say a word about these differences, where these two camps disagree, but also, you know, look, the way these two groups, uh, these two groups of people uh, agree or disagree about what Leo Strauss had to say, Glenn, of what use is this to us today? Um, okay, so the disagreement. Uh, some of the, so, so East Coast and West Coast are these geographical labels that were put on partly because Jaffa went to California and created this camp. And, and so he became known as a Western Straussian. Other sort of very prominent outposts of other Straussian students at Boston College and St. John's and Harvard and other were along the East Coast. And so these geographical labels just sort of got, uh, became useful for people discussing these disputes. That's where it comes from. Among the East Coast Straussians, there's a much greater emphasis on philosophy as separate, as non-political, as above the political fray, right? We're concerned with the permanent questions. We're concerned with metaphysics and being and the eternal things. And it's not the philosopher's job to get into the muck and mess around with party slogans and writing speeches for crazy people like Barry Goldwater. Right? <laughs> That's in a way a betrayal of the purity of the philosophic life. Um, Joff obviously didn't agree with that. Again, he thought that, that uh, we don't read books just for the sake of, of uh, uh, treating them as intellectual diversions. We read them because we want to live well. And we read them also because we do care about justice. I mean, some of the more extreme versions of the Eastern Straussians come close to saying uh, politics is for suckers. Morality is for delusional uh, people. There is really no morality. The philosopher is transpolitical, transmoral. And some of them, frankly, are quite open about saying that the ultimate truth of philosophy is nihilism and that Nietzsche was right and all philosophers are ultimately, uh, ultimately believe in, in that the cosmos is meaningless. Uh, Joff emphatically did not agree with that. And yet it seems that we have to be in, in some way at least careful of letting the philosophy bleed too much into the practical sure. politics. And, and I have, I'm going to quote here from The Soul of Politics. You say, the confident dutifulness of moral gentlemen, which is essential to decent politics, requires a certain discretion or responsibility by the philosopher. Encouraging these gentlemen's openness to philosophy must not lead to unreasonable expectations about what might come of that openness. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. So in the classical tradition, the philosopher is supposed to stay behind the scenes educating prominent young men, uh, you know, traditionally aristocrats because, you know, classical world was mostly, politics was, was the realm of the aristocrat. 
So educating prominent aristocratic young men who are going to have a political career and, you know, enlightening their opinions, making them more sophisticated. Uh, and, and, and in that way, indirectly, mod, you know, uh, ameliorating the excesses of the regime, bringing it back to a more moderate, more just focus, uh, suppressing some of the more barbaric superstitions that people might have. Uh, and in a way being a force for, you might say, civilizing and refining the regime. And that's perfectly true and, and that's still valid and Jaffa agreed with that. The problem in the modern world, and this is why Strauss himself was always talking about the crisis of the West, is that the situation has become much more extreme and much more dangerous. And the philosopher can't afford to remain on the sidelines and in the shadows because uh, the self-destruction of reason which is a phrase that Strauss uses. So modern philosophy in a way over the last several centuries has, has become more and more extreme, right? And it, and it culminates in a way with outright nihilism, the nihilism of Nietzsche and Heidegger, uh, existentialism is another word for this, uh, that the secret of, of uh, the secret philosophic truth is that the cosmos uh, is indifferent to human beings. Uh, there is no natural support for morality. The world is just meaningless flux, and that's the terrible truth of the world. And that's the doctrine of modern philosophy. And it's the doctrine that is now ubiquitous among all Western intellectuals, among the educated class, right? You can't go to an Ivy League college today and not get this doctrine of radical dogmatic atheism and nihilism and moral relativism and historicism shoved down your throat. And to, to, to even attempt to contradict that is to make you a laughingstock in the intellectual class. Well, this is a great danger, not only to healthy politics, but to philosophy itself, mm. because it is, it is a doctrinaire dogmatic assumption of what the truth of philosophy is. Mm. It absolutely ceases to be the Socratic openness that is supposed to represent philosophy. And so building on, on Strauss's concerns, Jaffa thought the crisis of the modern world, which is a crisis for both politics and philosophy, requires a much more forceful answer. Speaking of forceful, uh... <laughs> Harry Jaffa was a literal, I mean, he was a boxer and figurative yep. brawler. Yep. Uh, and, and many of those brawls uh, were with those one might expect to be more naturally friend than foe to Jaffa. Harvey Mansfield once remarked that in the ongoing battle for the soul of America, Jaffa was standing behind the front lines, pointing his weapon at the backs of his friends and firing away. And this is, uh, this is probably one of the most common criticisms leveled Against, um, against Jaffa. So we might wonder, were these fights counterproductive? Did they do more harm than good? And, and the reason I ask this question is because it seems that we're entering another intra-conservative war and some of the sniping may be to the good or it may be counterproductive. Uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that and what Jaffa might've thought of that criticism. So in his time, uh, he thought that the, one of the great dangers and Strauss himself warns about this danger is a kind of complacency, uh, a kind of sectarianism. Well, let's all just belong to this political philosophy club and we'll all be friends uh, and we'll just you know, share our opinions. And, and it becomes very easy to lapse into a kind of unthinking doctrinal sectarianism where people stop being, stop being philosophers. They stop questioning things, right? The whole idea of being a Socratic philosopher is to challenge conventional opinions to be constantly skeptical, to be wary, to, to say, is this the truth or are we just assuming it's the truth? Do we really know, right? And so Jaffa 
was always engaged in battles with people because he, he always wanted to avoid the danger of complacency, the danger of just assuming we know. He also did think that the truth was discoverable. He was, again, not a relativist. And he thought the truth was more important than friendship. Now, that's, you know, uh, it is possible to go too far. And sometimes even some of his friends <laughs> said, you know, urged him to tone it down. Uh, he had a, a pugnacious personality, which he indulged, but he really did think, and I, I, I um, you know, to give, him, to give him credit, he really did want to work these things out because it mattered to him what the truth was. Mm. And he personally, you know, tried not to let this interfere with personal friendships. Uh, sometimes, you know, old friendships did dissolve, but, but some, you know, there were many other Straussians that he did maintain a friendship with, but, but he thought that personal feelings were less important than getting at the truth because the stakes were too high to just let, uh, to just, you know, this idea of let's all just get along, what difference does it make? Uh, Jaffa thought that that was a, a dangerous temptation to be avoided. Um, I forgot what the second part of your question was. Oh, today. Right. Um, so, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, again, the question of prudence of practical judgment is always has to be front and center. And, and uh, Jaffa was aware of that. By the way, you know, as much as he liked getting into fights, as much as he liked to argue, as much as he was willing to put personal friendships on the line, he was also very practical in the sense of, of winning politically. So mm. one of his big, big battles was with a famous paleoconservative traditionalist named Mel Bradford. Mel Bradford was a kind of neo-Confederate who romanticized the South, hated Lincoln, and Jaffa just battled with him hammer and tongs over Lincoln and, and the role of tradition versus natural right. But when Bradford was nominated by Ronald Reagan to be the head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Jaffa strongly supported him. Hmm. He battled constantly with Judge Robert Bork over the proper interpretation of the Constitution and the role of natural law. But he supported Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So he was prudent in the sense that he always wanted, quote, our side to win politically when we had the chance. Let's talk about Jaffa in, in the administrative state. Uh, drawing from your book and quoting Jaffa here. Anyone who advances the claims of wisdom as a ground for ruling must be an unwise adventurer, discredited in advance by the fact that he has advanced such claims, end quote. And then you add on that, from this perspective, the expertise invoked by those who seek to replace consent and the rule of law with administrative fiat is illegitimate in every way, end quote. Okay. On the right today, there's a growing number of people calling for the right to embrace the administrative state and use it for its own ends. So two questions here. One, how would Jaffa respond to that? And two, and perhaps this informs your answer to the first question, is this desire uh, to use the administrative state prudent? So let's just make a distinction on using the administrative state. The the Intellectual presupposition of the, of the administrative state is uh, academically trained experts trained in the academy in the social sciences, and that is that means treating politics as if it were a science, right? As right. if human beings are mathematical objects to be manipulated, as if we're just matter. That's a very dangerous idea. It comes out of some bad theory from Thomas Hobbes and other people. So this idea that we should turn our lives over to experts, that's that always has to be rejected. Emphatically, uh, and that's a you know the, the ancient philosopher said wisdom is the only claim to rule. 
sure, that's true, as long as you really are wise. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is that the, the, the so-called experts in the administrative state aren't wise. Uh, you know, the debacle in Afghanistan, if it hmm. proved anything, it proved that, you know, 20 years of, of uh, the wisdom of the best minds from Harvard uh, led to an absolute total humiliating uh, uh, disaster. Yeah. Now, that's very different from, however, saying uh, we're going to, as, as there are a lot of conservatives who say, well, politics is so corrupt, it's so demeaning, we're just going to be hands off and, and get out of. Now, that's a very different question. And, and uh, Jaffa would have thought it's a terrible mistake to uh, remove yourself from the, from the world of politics, to abstain from using political authority because you think it's corrupting or illegitimate. No, we always have to use political authority when we can right? Absolutely. You can't win politically if you don't exercise political power. This is a mistake that a lot of theorists and a lot of East Coast Straussians make from Jaffa's point of view is they look at things too theoretical. They too theoretically, they forget about what Strauss called the sternness of politics, right? Mm. Politics is not just speech. That's the error that the sophists made. They think politics is just about gabbing and talking, but you also have to use power. And so the, the, the conservatives who say today, Yes, by all means, use the lever, levers of politics. Jaffa would absolutely have endorsed that. But, but we have to reject the, the, the underlying premise of the intellectual class at the same time. Let's talk about the crisis facing America and the West more generally today. How should, how should we understand this crisis? What, what is the nature of this crisis? Is it the same as Jaffa would have diagnosed? Is it different in some ways? Is it more advanced? Yes, it's more advanced. Um, I think he, you know, he didn't die that long ago. He only passed away in 2015. Right. He didn't live long enough to quite see the Trump phenomenon. This is a question I get all the time when I go out lecturing on college campuses. What would Trump, what would Jaffa have thought of Trump? And I, I sort of prefer not to answer because I don't want to speak for someone who's not here to sure. speak for himself. But, but, but clearly the roots of the question were there all along and Jaffa saw them long ago and warned about them. And it's a combination of both uh, moral and intellectual failings, hmm. uh, right? There are certain ideologies, certain bad ideas, which have taken hold of the modern mind, which he tried to battle against all the time. And we discussed some of these nihilism and historicism, um, the idea that there's no intellectual justification for uh, a justice or morality grounded in nature, grounded in permanent truth. But there's also a, you know, a moral failing. Uh, self-government is hard. He liked to remind people about that. There's a very wonderful speech that Lincoln gave where he talked about rising to equality. A regime based on equal natural rights, a regime based on self-government, requires a very high degree of self-control, of self-government in the sense of governing your own passions, of being in control of your sight, taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, both defending your rights and respecting the rights of others, knowing where your rights come from. There are great moral demands placed, and, and those have to be cultivated through education and good habits and good institutions. And we started letting all that go a long time ago, and that problem has only gotten worse. So it's a combination of both moral and intellectual failings. And he, uh, you know, he would not be surprised at where we are because <laughs> we still don't seem to be able to do what it takes to fix those problems. You address this book, The Soul of Politics, to the natural Aristotle. So two questions here as we draw to a close. One, what is this natural Aristotle? Uh, it's a phrase you borrow from, from Jefferson. 
And then two, as we survey the crisis, what is the natural error story to do practically? So uh, Jefferson was a, a great Enlightenment thinker, a little bit too much in love with the Enlightenment, maybe from some points of view, but he despised and loathed uh, the backwardness and the superstition as he saw it of, of the Middle Ages, uh, what he called monkish superstition. And again, I don't want to offend my Catholic friends, but Jefferson was not a big fan of the church at that time. Yeah. Um, and he especially hated the phony aristocracy, the hereditary aristocracy of Europe, because uh, it, it empowered a bunch of bad people to have authority and power simply because of the accident of their birth. And it denied opportunity to millions of people just because they were born as serfs. And he thought the great, wonderful promise of America was to get rid of that horrible ar artificial aristocracy. And he said, in America, through equal opportunity, equal rights, limited government, we can allow the natural aristocracy, the aristocracy of merit, the aristocracy of hard work and virtue to flourish. And so he used the Greek word aristoi, just sort of, a, uh, he was writing to John Adams and they, they loved to write to each other in Greek once in a while. And so, but he meant the natural aristocracy that emerges in a, in a society of, of equality and opportunity. Uh, but the natural aristocracy are also, uh, in a way, uh, emblematic of the excellence possible, right? It's not just uh, to get ahead, although there's nothing wrong with getting ahead. It's also to develop that kind of uh, virtue that can lead you to be a statesman, right? Mm. The virtue of a person who cares about his community, uh, a, a person who wants to uh, operate on the field, the great field of politics, uh, to display his ambition, his excellence, you know, to be a Lincoln or a Washington or a Churchill. That's who I'm addressing the book to. Uh, people out there may still be young who are concerned, uh, but maybe too cynical. Uh, Jaffa was very concerned, and I'm very concerned uh, that the danger for young people looking out on, on I don't know if this is still a term that, that people use, clown world, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but younger people on the right, I, I can understand this, look out on the world and, and its phoniness and its corruption, and they despise it. And so they just turn away and they become mm -hmm. cynical. And, and what I wanted to do in this book is to say, no, um, if, you, if you want to be a man, if you want to exercise your virtue, if you want to fight against this, you don't reject politics, you embrace it. And so those are the people I'm trying to, to reach in part. Glenn, this has been such a treat for me. Uh, I, I think my introduction to Harry Jaffa was his essay on America as the best regime. And uh, I, I remember reading that. I think it was the summer after I had graduated from college and, and just being floored by it. I, th I thought it was so wonderful. Uh, so I encourage all listeners, uh, whether you are familiar with Harry Jaffa or not, to go pick up a copy of The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa in the Fight for America. Glenn Elmers, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nina. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Glenn Elmers on his new intellectual biography of Harry Jaffa, The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa, and the Fight for America. As I think you heard there from Glenn, there's a lot in the book for everyone, whether you've studied Jaffa and Strauss carefully or never heard of either man before today. There's a link to the book, which is published by Encounter Books, in the show notes. There's not much more to add today other than to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2022 here 
on Madison's Notes.